electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans. And among everything else to consider, President Biden is expected to speak about 30 minutes from now as he orders a huge release of oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. And it may not stop there. Could gasoline rebates be next? And would any of this actually work to bring pump prices down? We'll have that plus the impact on energy stocks. And what is the unemployment rate telling us about the possibility of recession? As the big jobs report looms tomorrow morning, we look at whether the Fed can bring down inflation without sparking a downturn. And what does it all mean for the stock market? We are about to close out the worst quarter for stocks in two years. The Nasdaq down nearly 8%. We'll look at whether there's more pain ahead. But first, let's get the read on today's markets. And it's red. The Dow down 185 to close out the month. That's half a percent decline. The S&P down four-tenths right now. We're below 4,600. The Nasdaq down six-tenths of a percent. Uh, So pretty even declines throughout the markets today. But energy is the center of the action. It's seeing big declines today. After the White House unveils a raft of measures, not just the SPR release, they're talking about penalties on companies that aren't producing from their public land leases. They're invoking the Defense Production Act to encourage mining for electric battery parts. Oil prices down 4% on WTI, still at 103. Brent, a similar decline. Nat gas still positive by 3%. So getting in the range of six per million BTUs. The travel stocks are also back in the spotlight today as cruises, airlines, hotels, and booking companies move higher. Maybe the flip side of oil prices, but also some reopening hopes there. On the flip side, retail is moving lower again, and the XRT ETF is now on pace for its worst quarter in two years. Been a really rough one there. And chipmaker AMD, which you just heard about, is among the worst performers on the S&P after getting cut to neutral at Barclays, which is saying their growth story is having a pause. Seven and a half percent decline for AMD down to 110. Now, ahead of tomorrow's big jobs report, let's get a pulse check on the unemployment rate right now. It was 3.8 percent as of February. And the gap between total jobs and total available workers in the U.S. remains at a post-war high. Chair Powell himself at the press conference two weeks ago said the labor market is tight to an unhealthy level. The problem, there's no historical evidence that the Fed can loosen the labor market without a recession happening. Those are these thick bands we see here. A recession has always taken place when the unemployment rate is three-tenths of a percent higher over just a three-month period of time. You could call it the Dudley rule. Uh, It's sort of something that Bill Dudley always liked to invoke. Is it too late? That's the real question. Is our fate sealed? Is a downturn lurking sometime in the middle of next year? Joining me now is Mike Faroli. He's the chief U.S. economist with J.P. Morgan. Mike, you've pointed this out in your excellent note yesterday. What are your concerns? Well, the concern, uh, I think you pretty much summed it up pretty well, is that with the unemployment rate very tight, or very low, I should say, and and evidence building of a wage price spiral, which will keep upward pressure on inflation for some time, the Fed, with their policy, should want to relieve some of that pressure to slow growth in demand and, uh, for better or worse, actually get the unemployment rate up just a little bit. Uh, But as you mentioned, that tends to be hard when the Fed puts, uh, exerts, you know, puts, puts the brakes on the economy, I should say. Uh, the unemployment rate usually tends to go up a lot. And uh, so that, I think, really is a concern. It's not necessarily a concern for this year, I would say. 
Uh, the Fed is just getting started. They're obviously going to, seems like they're going to pick up the pace. Uh, but I think given the lags in monetary policy and how that acts on the real economy, next year prospects, you know, are looking a little more dicey if, uh, if the Fed really needs to, to slam on the brakes here to slow uh, this wage price spiral that does appear to be developing right now. Yeah, it's a, a, a conundrum if you sort of say we've never been able to see an improvement in the unemployment rate without it basically triggering a recession. Is there anything we could do now uh, to keep that from being the case if you look ahead into the middle of next year or whatever markets are signaling? Yeah, it's a lot easier to say what we should have done maybe in the second half of last year. Uh, I think for now, the Fed, I think they're on the right path of trying to catch up to where they should be. Uh, and then they're going to have to be very nimble, I think, in, in seeing signs of a slowdown and then stopping when that happens. Uh, that's essentially the closest thing I think we have to a soft landing where we uh, where the scenario we're talking about played out was in 94, 95. And in that period, Greenspan, who was a very uh, uh, fine reader of the data, uh, did, you know, he was quick in, in noticing that the uh, business cycle was rolling over. So I think we're going to have to be, and the Fed's going to have to be really nimble here in deciding when to stop uh, their hikes. But um, so we'll see. It's going to be, it's going to be, it could be, could be a bit tricky. And as you point out, in 1984 and in 1994, those soft landing episodes happened when inflation had already been heading lower for years and the unemployment rate was above its natural rate. So here we are in the opposite scenario. The inflation rate has been heading higher in recent months and the unemployment rate is, would you say, below its natural rate? I think most estimates would say it's below its natural range. And certainly the evidence we're seeing in wage growth, which has been running well above productivity growth, uh, would suggest that the labor market is very tight. So by a number of measures, and I think you also mentioned job openings relative to number of unemployed people is at all-time highs. Uh, so I think however you look at it, it does feel like the unemployment rate is below its natural rate and therefore is exerting upward pressure on inflation. Uh, so that is, and again, unlike those earlier episodes, all that you really had to do in those earlier episodes was just slow down growth to around trend growth. Here, the Fed, if they really you know, are serious about inflation, may have to push growth below trend growth. And that's where you get into concerns about stall speeds, uh, which is a notion that whenever growth gets below a certain level, you tend to stall and actually go into negative growth. So that kind of really compounds uh, the challenge relative to those earlier periods that you mentioned. And would you be saying, in other words, that the best way for the Fed to avoid a downturn sometime next year would be to be even tighter and even more hawkish right now? Well, I think that's the rationale behind the Fed's latest pivot toward more, uh, more aggressive rate hikes in the near term is to get back to something closer to neutral. Neutral funds rate being something like two to two and a half percent. Once you get in that range, then it's easier to get policy tight or ease policy if you need be. Uh, but I think that's the rationale is that if you can get there sooner, maybe next year you won't have to be playing even more. So right now the Fed's playing catch up. Uh, arguably. Uh, and I think the, the rationale for hurrying now is that you, you, you would be, pay, be playing even more catch up next year if you don't go faster now. Uh, so that seems to be what's driving the latest pivot in Fed thinking is, you know, let's get in a better position, not so far off sides as they are uh, arguably right now. Let me spin ahead to 830 tomorrow morning. Is the worst problem uh, for the street and for economists if we see a really strong, you know, if we add 600,000 jobs and the unemployment rate goes to 3.4 percent, the you know, average hourly earnings are five and a half percent year on year. Would that actually be the worst possible report? Would you much prefer to see something where we only add 200,000 and wages are flat and the unemployment rate maybe ticks up a little? 
You know, I think in the ideal world, what you would see is a lot of job growth and a lot of increase in labor force participation. And then that means more income, more spending, but not necessarily more inflation. Uh, on the other hand, if we don't get that pickup in participation, there is going to be a point here where you probably do want to slow down job growth uh, and certainly slow down wage growth. And, and again, I don't want to say wage growth is uh, wage growth is great, uh, but you want wage growth that is sustainable uh, and you want wage growth that is growing around the, a little faster than the rate of productivity growth. So in a perfect world like you had in, in the late 90s, you'd have really strong productivity growth, so you could have really strong wage growth. But uh, absent that strength and productivity growth, we probably want wage growth to moderate here, strange as it, as it may sound, if we want to get the inflation problem in the medium term under control. Yeah, up is down and down is up and, and everything else in this environment. <laughs> Mike, thanks so much for your time. It's good yep, to see thank you. you. Mike Faroli of J.P. Morgan. All right, let's turn now to stocks. They're actually about to close out their first positive month of the year. And my next guest isn't worried about the Fed triggering a recession right now anyway. She says it's a good uh, time for long-term investors to begin positioning. She's got three conviction calls, expecting big gains outside the U.S. markets. Let's welcome in Marianne Montaigne. She's portfolio manager at Gradient Investments. It's great to see you, Marianne. Let's just talk big picture for a second, not to belabor the point here, but, you know, what, what, what do you think we're, we're on? What, what are your concerns in this environment? Oh, I have a lot of concerns, but I think I'm trying to separate myself out from all the worries and look forward to, you know, a time when there's fewer worries. And for that reason, I'm, you know, very um, optimistic toward a ceasefire in the Ukraine. And that's why I think that uh, overseas stocks are going to outperform U.S. stocks. Uh, when you look at the um, uh, for instance, the Eurostoxx 50 in, in the EU, uh, they benefit from a stronger euro against the U.S. dollar in a post-COVID and post-Ukraine world. Um, they're at a 33% discount to the U.S. stocks. If we look at emerging markets, they're beneficiaries from lower energy costs and uh, higher values for other commodities uh, outside of energy. And that's selling at about a 43% discount to U.S. stocks. So I think international will outperform. Yeah, we don't often get people uh, excited about buying Europe. So <laughs> here we are. I see, and for the obvious, uh, excellent reasons that you mentioned, you think this could be a moment to look at Europe for exposure. Emerging markets, obviously some of them do benefit from lower energy costs and high commodity prices, which we're seeing. You're also looking, at, is this right here, towards some high-yield bonds? Uh, yeah, so the uh, high-yield bonds, I, I think, will have better underpinnings, so uh, maybe better uh, credit spreads going forward. Um, they obviously have higher yields with about a 5.4% right now. And also, if we look to emerging markets, uh, local currency government debt, you know, that's high quality against uh, overseas uh, corporates or overseas junk bonds. And you can get a 6% yield there. So they're very attractive with durations that are less than the U.S. Uh, aggregate bond index. I want to ask you about semiconductors because NVIDIA was a call of yours the last time you were on a couple months ago, and it's up probably about 10% in that period. But there's a lot of anxiety around uh, the cycle right now. Any, what would you share? Uh, do the stocks still look attractive to you? Do you have to, does it depend on the name? Well, it does depend upon the name. 
But um, just looking at the, uh, the overall landscape, I think we're looking toward a period of time when we're getting increased supplies. You know, all the talk has been about supply shortages, but we're looking at a time for increased supplies and that's across the board. So if you get supplies to the auto industry vehicles, then you can get much stronger growth in those semiconductors. They're actually selling cars without certain semiconductors in them. They'll have to go back and retrofit those. So there's still a very strong market for uh, semiconductors, cross vehicles, and other electronics. Yeah, I remember Tesla was having trouble with the seat adjustment uh, chips that it was looking for. So it's not always the high tech stuff. A couple of names right. in particular that you like here, um, Snap, Splunk. Uh, is it Azek, A-Z-E-K? Tell me about those. Why do they pop up for you? Well, ASEC is actually a consumer discretionary type of item. They manufacture the engineered product to make deck systems for your home. And there's a ton of pent-up demand. People, the consumer's in great shape. And along with experiences, I think they would include having a deck on the back of the house that, you know, affords them more outdoor time uh, when I... Uh, Airfares are extraordinarily high, as are hotel rooms. And, uh, uh, you know, it's just a family type of investment for the home. And, you know, with really good housing prices, the investments in the home is always a good, is a good idea in this, uh, in this environment. Um, so that's a company where they tend to over, uh, under-promise and over-deliver. And it's selling at a discount to its growth rate, which we estimate at about 25% over the next five years. Uh, so that's a, a great name where people might not be looking at goods in sure. the consumer side of things. Um, as for Splunk, that is a company that uh, recently took on a new CEO and shopped to the upside on the last earnings report. Um, we know that uh, there's a rumor out there, so I can't say we know, but we know there's a rumor that Cisco may be out to buy them. And so we think there's a lot of upside in Splunk. And then Snap is a company that is also growing very quickly and um, they uh, are dependent upon ad revenue growth, which is uh, here. It's, it's something that we can see. I uh, put our arms around and there's tremendous leverage in this operation. So we could see a huge increase in EBITDA and free cash flow out of SNAP. Um, and that's a company that we're adding to. All right. Three different stories. And uh, even in the case of AZEC, definitely some bargain hunting for uh, what's been a difficult sector this year. Marianne, always good to have you. Thanks for your time. Thank you. Kelly. Marianne Montaigne. Coming up, energy having its best start to the year since 1999. But could the largest release of oil reserves in history put a damper on returns from here? We'll dig into that ahead of the president's remarks set to start in about 20 minutes. But first, one Texas bank is wasting no time raising interest rates on its saving and checking accounts. Up next, we'll talk to the CEO about inflation, interest rates and profitability amid a flattening yield curve. As we head to break, let's get a quick check on stocks. We see declines across the board still. Dow's down almost 200 points. Ten-year yield, 232. We're back in a moment. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.
What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to The Exchange. Bond yields have been on a tear since the Fed started tightening two weeks ago, and an inversion between twos and tens has gotten pretty close. That could pose risks for banks, which normally borrow short-term and lend longer-term. But Frostbank, a Texas regional bank, says it's been expecting this, and it just raised the interest on savings and checking accounts. Joining me now, well, let's check on the shares first. Cullen Frost Bankers, the parent company, up 11% this year in what's been a challenging but fairly good market for financials. Joining me now exclusively on the exchange is Phil Green. He is the chairman and CEO of Cullen Frost Bankers. Welcome back, Phil. It's good to see you again. Good to see you, Kelly. Thanks for having me. Which part of the yield curve matters most to you guys? You know, for the most immediate impact to us for operating leverage, it's the short end of the curve. And we've really positioned ourselves over the last year and a half to take advantage of this. We have about, going into it, about 30% of our balance sheet was in a checking account at the Federal Reserve, earning about 15 basis points. So we had had the maximum optionality for increased interest rates, and it's great that we're be uh, that we've been able to see that some. So we've uh, we've taken advantage of that. So, in other words, do you benefit more from the very steep three-month, two-year, three-month, ten-year versus the the part that I previously mentioned? Right. It's actually the short end of the curve. It's it's really what the Fed is doing on the Fed funds rate and the earnings credit rate that they're giving. So that's that's the biggest impact because that's what our loans are tied to. We have a tremendous amount of floating rate loans, mm. and that's also what this uh, this liquidity is tied to. We'll take advantage of the longer part of the curve with lots of investment capacity, uh, and we'll take a look at the parts of the curve that give the most risk reward in terms of uh, what, it's, what it gives us, whether that's mortgage backs, municipals, or even treasury. So we're looking at all those. If you benefit just from the Fed funds rate, you could be sitting pretty for the next 18 months. We're talking about it going from you know, four-tenths of a percent to two percent, maybe three percent, maybe three and a half. I guess the flip side of that would be it's happening because we're in an inflationary environment and we've seen banks have pressure on their expense ratios and other things. So what's your outlook for profitability, even with the benefits that we're talking about? Yeah. Uh, outlook for profitability is good. You know, every 25 basis point increase in the Fed, our modeling shows that's about 20 to 25 cents for share for our profitability. So those increases would be very significant uh, to us in terms of profitability. But the other thing it does is it gives us the ability to continue to increase rates to our customers, be fair with them. And as we see increases in interest rates, we let them have some of the benefit of that as well and not wait till it gets a 100 basis point increase like we did and the industry did in 2017. We sort of learned our lessons from that and we're moving along as, re as rates increase by the Fed. Oh, interesting. So a little snappier this time. What is happening on the expense side for you? You know, uh, the biggest increase in expenses is in labor. And I think that's not just true for us. It's true for our customers as well. We saw our minimum wage increase by 33% at the beginning of this year, went from $15 to $20. Uh, you're seeing that in so many different areas and it's affecting many 
many industries. You're right, exactly. And that offsets, you know, the benefit that you're getting from higher rates is offset to some extent by that pressure. Can you also speak to loan demand, which we all watch as just a gauge of is the economy still strong and growing quickly or showing signs of moderation? What do you see there? In the markets where we are, we're still seeing good loan demand. We saw a really good pipeline. I really saw an inflection in commercial industrial loans back in May uh, and June of last year. That's continued to be consistent, and we haven't seen any drop off in loan demand at this point. That's great news. What about the consumer, where we hear about you know high levels of, of liquidity, bank accounts, and all the like, but we are lapping the stimulus payments, we are getting back to normal, and we are seeing a huge sting coming from inflation. Yeah. You know, I, as far as balances, they are higher than they uh, than they were pre-COVID. And so uh, a lot of those balances on average are sticky. The part that, of the uh, economy that we worry about is the impact that inflation has on the uh, less fortunate and on the lower income segment, because that's a, effectively a tax on them as you see prices for energy, prices for food increase like they have. Does it mean you guys are Texas-based? Is the region generally benefiting from the activity around the oil and gas industries? Um, or struggling with the hit that, you know, every consumer is taking on those prices. Yeah. You know, I think the, the industry is really interesting when you look at it right now. Uh, prices are high, but you haven't seen a lot of increase in production. And some of the customers that we have, that we've talked to recently say they're restricted in the amount of drilling and amount of production increases they can come up with because the, the, uh, the inputs are restricted. Sand, for example downhole production pipe, for example, uh, truck drivers, labor of all kinds. And so you're, you're seeing, um, one, of, one of them told us that it's the first time in their history that they haven't been able to redeploy their cash flow into drilling like they'd like because they really just don't have the capacity of inputs in, it in order to get it done. And one of the things we've also seen is that lease prices haven't really seen a strong growth at this point, which tells me that you're not seeing a lot of speculation money going into the market there. You're not seeing a lot of capital move into it. So I don't think it's going to be, uh, I think it'll be a while before we see much production increase from the uh, oil patch. And so I don't think it's that big an impact in Texas right now. Well, that's some great insight as we actually going to hear from the president shortly on this issue. I feel good to have you on. Thanks for your time. Great. Bill Green with Cullen Frost Bankers. And still ahead, the president is announcing the largest release of U.S. oil reserves in history. He's scheduled to speak from the White House in about 10 minutes' time. We'll bring you the remarks live. Oil and gas may be getting all the attention right now, but investors are also quietly making a big bet on clean energy. We'll tell you what's behind the push into renewables and which names are benefiting. And as we head to break, a quick look at the Dow heat map shows about one to three gainers, uh, one to two, I should say, gainers versus decliners with Walgreens, Intel, and Home Depot with the biggest laggards. We're back in a moment. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, 
packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back to the uh, the exchange, she said. The Dow was down 227 at the lows. We're just 30 points off those levels. About half percent declines across the board as we look to close out the quarter. Let's look at the sectors since Jan 1, where energy is far and away the outperformer. As you can see here, it's up 40 percent. Utilities a distant second with a 4 percent gain. Communication services down 11 percent. Four of the top five names in the S&P this year are also energy stocks, with Oxy doubling in just the past three months. 101 percent gain. Mosaic, Halliburton up there as well. Uh, some other names we're looking at to round things out. The Home Builders or Housing ETF, the XHB, said to post its third straight monthly loss for its longest losing streak in five years. Trex, we just talked about their competitor a moment ago, and RH are the two worst performers in the fund. Trex down 50%. RH is down about 40%. And Home Depot is the biggest loser in the Dow so far this year. It's down 27% since Jan 1, and it's on pace for its worst quarter in two decades. Now, sticking with the blue chips, Disney is also on pace for its fourth straight negative quarter and its worst one in two years. It's the biggest laggard in the Dow over the whole past 12 months. It's down about 25%. And Netflix set to post its worst quarter in a decade and its fifth straight monthly loss. That's its longest losing streak since 2002, which was the year it went public. Time for a CNBC News update with Tyler Matheson. Hi, Tyler. Well, from saints to sinners there in some of those cases. Thanks very much, Kelly. Uh, let's uh, talk about your news update at this hour. I never agreed to kidnap Michigan Governor Whitner. That's the testimony of one of the four men charged with trying to abduct the governor before the 2020 elections. Daniel Harris says he was not involved in any crimes, but that, quote, America was on fire over the killing of George Floyd by a Minneapolis police officer. On the news, how the defense case is shaping up and why some potential witnesses are refusing to take the stand. That's at 7 o'clock Eastern time with Shep Smith tonight. CIA Director William Burns has tested positive for COVID. The agency says his symptoms are mild and Burns will continue to work from home. He met with President Biden yesterday morning, but they practiced social distancing and Burns wore an N95 mask. And the United Nations is making its biggest ever one-year aid request for a single country. UN Chief Gutierrez is asking wealthy nations to contribute $4.4 billion to help Afghanistan, which is in the midst of a humanitarian crisis. He says 9 million people facing famine and some are selling their children and their own organs to pay for food. Kelly, And I thought you. I had the bad news. Uh, yeah. That's a lot worse. Tyler, we'll see you soon. Thank you. Still ahead, we're standing by for President Biden, who is set to speak about his plan to release an unprecedented amount of U.S. oil from reserves. This, in an effort to control rising gasoline prices, will bring you the event as soon as it begins. Quick check on WTI as we head to break. Looking down 4% today, it's under 103 a barrel. Uh, still above 100, though. We're back in a moment.
Welcome back, everybody. There's a live shot of the White House where President Biden is expected to speak any moment now about his plans to lower gasoline prices. That includes the release of an unprecedented amount of oil reserves. And this comes as OPEC Plus is sticking to its modest oil output growth strategy. Let's talk about all of it with Brian Sullivan. And Brian, again, this is not just about the SPR release. We're already hearing about them uh, penalizing oil and gas companies who are not using their federal land leases to pump oil. They're using the, what is it, the National Defense Act in order to uh, produce more mining for batteries, renewable sources. So this is a multi-pronged attack. Well, it's weird because on one hand, they're wondering why American companies aren't producing more oil. On the other hand, they're basically yelling at them and bring them in front of Congress and saying it is it is, I would say, and I've had many private conversations with these executives, whatever you think of the industry, Kelly, they're human beings. They're just blood pumping like the rest of us. And they're like, we're confused. The messages are all mixed. The signals are mixed. And by the way, those federal leases, a lot of them are offshore and you only you only drill on certain tracks. So that 9,000 permits thing is, it's kind of like saying, why haven't you used all of your yard to build a house on every inch? Either way, here's what we know. We've got the podium waiting on the president. The president is expected to announce uh, as much as 1 million barrel a day release from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve for up to six months. The SPR right now is holding about 588 million barrels. That'd be draining by 180 million. The max, by the way, is 727 million barrels. So right now, the SPR is about 80% full. It's down 30 million from last August. Remember, the SPR is not one thing. It is four storage sites, basically salt caves in Texas and Louisiana. And there is some concern, and maybe Dan Pickering, who you're going to have on in a moment, knows this. Uh, the Trafagura CEO, which is a huge trading house, said they don't think the U.S. can get a million barrels a day out of it. They think five or 600,000 is the most you can physically extract due to limitations on trucks and pipelines, etc. Also, 56% right now, the SPR's inventory is sour crude. Remember, there's light and sweet. That's what we quote in WTI. And then there's sour. It has to match up with what we refine to lower gasoline prices, what the, what the president wants. I don't think the president cares about oil prices. He cares about gasoline prices. Kelly, right now, refinery utilization is at 95% or 92%. So it's very high anyway, nearly at full steam. Wow. We'll see if they can take that much out and if it's actually going to matter, even if they do. Goldman Sachs says they don't think it will. We spoke with the CEO of a Texas-based bank a moment ago, Brian. I don't know if you heard it. Was it. Great. He was, yeah, describing some of the challenges great. that they face in trying to ramp up production there and said he's not seeing big increases in leasing prices or in uh, demand for loans around that activity right now. Dan Pickering is with us as well. He's the chief investment officer of Pickering Energy Partners. Dan, do you, and first of all, even if we could get a million barrels a day, we consume about 20 million barrels a day. So if anything, this would cover kind of the the growth, the increase uh, in, in demand that we might be expecting. But to Brian's point, do you think we can get a million barrels a day out of the SPR? Well, I think uh, the government wants to try. We'll, we'll find out. That would be the, the most significant volumes we've tried to extract. Um, you probably don't know until you try, but it's an aggressive goal. And, you know, so I think we'll have to wait and see. Uh, it'll be half a million to a million barrels a day. It's still a meaningful number. It's moving prices today to the downside, at least in terms of short-term crude. How much price uh, action, Dan, have we seen since this announcement, which I believe was rumored during the session yesterday? Would you say about 8% total uh, decline in, in oil prices so far? Yeah, call it, call it 6 to $8 a barrel, which is 
you know, in percentage terms, that's not a, a huge percentage these days. I mean, it's a meaningful move. I think, Kelly, the other thing to look at, though, is the longer dated crude, uh, 23 and 24, that's actually up today, which is reflective of, of you add barrels to the market in 2022, but you're probably going to refill the SPR in 23 and 24. So you're just pushing a problem from 22 into the future. So we're deferring, not solving with, with this process. So roughly speaking, maybe we've taken WTI from 110 to 102 a barrel here, which again, will bring gasoline prices down somewhat, Dan. What does an approach like this mean for the energy stocks? So it looks like everything so far is not actually trying to destroy demand because that's politically unpopular. So it's basically mm-hmm. it's basically facilitating and, and to some extent help having taxpayers, if we do rebates or something, helping to facilitate that increase in demand, which seems like it should be bullish for this sector. But what do you think? Well, you look at stocks today and they're up in a, in a, in a tape where oil is down, at least in, in the front month. And so I think that's investors saying this is this is continuing the dynamic of, of a tight supply demand market of, over time. I think the other thing we've got to consider here is that getting prices down in the near term doesn't do anything to this issue of energy security. If anything, it makes it worse because lower prices in the near term yeah. volatility pushes Bingo. pushes these companies to, to, to be afraid of investing. So right now it feels like we've got a little bit of the stick being applied by the government. The question is, don't we need some carrots to get the industry uh, on board with energy security? Brian? Yeah, I couldn't agree with Dan more. I mean, energy security is what we're finding out. Look at what's happening in Europe, guys. I mean, gasoline is almost 10 U.S. dollars a gallon and now they're talking about shutting off production of basic industries because <clears throat> they don't have the gas and they can't afford to make the product here. I think there's a few other points I would add on with Dan, which is the timing of this is interesting. I mean, it takes about two weeks from an announcement to get oil out of the SPR. Two weeks from now is about when the last tanker with Russian oil is going to arrive in the United States. We mm. thought it was weeks ago. It's not. According to Vortexa, there are 17 tankers on the oceans right now, coming to America, filled with Russian oil because they bought in that 45-day window. Assuming those eventually, you know, they don't get turned around somewhere and make it here, the timing of this should correlate almost perfectly with the last ship of Russian oil. Why do we say that? Well, because that'll take 3% of our oil off the market. 3%'s not a lot, but in a tight market it is. And now you just replace that with a a million barrels a day if they can do that from the SPR. So I think you're going to do that You've got that timing, but let's also be perfectly blunt. All right, six months from then is near November 8th, the midterm elections. I think there is a a lot of political electioneering around this Mm -hmm. because inflation is bad, bad, bad. You want gasoline prices to stay as low as possible from now. By the way, we haven't even hit the summer. Once people start to drive because they can't afford airfares, wait for gasoline demand to spike. And we haven't built a new refinery in America, I think, since... What is it, Dan, 1977 when you were when you were one year old? <laughs> Dan, also, as you address that, you do here think that we're setting up a five year bull run for the energy sector with everything that's going on here. I do. We, we were tight and there was a cyclical recovery underway before the, the Russian invasion and the Ukraine issues. And now we have this energy security uh, dynamic where we're going to have to find trustworthy barrels that that don't come from bad actors. And so to do that, uh, we're going to have to ramp up the U.S. I think U.S. production goes back to 
uh, you know, record levels. We were 13 million barrels a day at the peak. I think we'll go higher than that. And so to do yep. that with energy at 4% of the S&P 500, and it's now strategic, that just doesn't make any sense to me. So I think we're going to see this sector double again over the next five years. It's got to be 10% of the S&P uh, in a world where we are trying to have more energy security and more trustworthy barrels. You like Schlumberger, some of the Permian producers, Diamondback, Devon. Uh, we haven't even really gotten into the nat gas piece of this. We'll leave it here for the time being. Dan, thanks for your time. It's great to have you, Dan Pickering. Brian, stick Thank around you. if you will. We're still waiting to hear from the president. Uh, we'll take a quick break. When we come back, President Biden re- uh, remarking about his plans to lower gasoline prices for U.S. consumers and Russia's invasion of Ukraine, boosting investments in renewable energy as well. We will look at the funds attracting the most money and the most popular stocks within them. That's next. Welcome back, everybody. We are waiting remarks from President Biden on the largest ever release from the Strategic Petroleum Reserves. We'll take it live when it starts. By the way, that's only one plank of the government's plan to try to lower energy prices. Renewable energy is also getting some support. The National Defense Act being invoked uh, for battery mining for materials needed for that. And it all comes as clean energy funds have been seeing inflows this month. As Russia's war on Ukraine drives oil supply concerns, solar's been a bright spot. Pippa Stevens joins us to break down the numbers and the big movers. Pippa? Hey, Kelly. Russia's invasion of Ukraine is putting clean energy on the fast track for two reasons. Higher gas prices make renewables more competitive, and concerns about energy security are boosting interest and investment in areas like wind and solar. This month, renewable energy funds have seen $642 million in inflows, reversing three straight months of outflows. That's according to data from Morningstar Direct. Looking at where the money's going, the Invesco Solar Fund and iShares Global Clean Energy Fund have attracted the lion's share of those dollars. And drilling down a little more, we can see where funds are placing their biggest bets. SolarEdge, First Solar, and Enphase are the most widely held stocks in actively managed clean energy funds, according to RBC. And Sonova Energy Array Technologies and TPI Composites have the largest portion of their float-adjusted market cap held in clean energy funds. So on one side, we have the European Commission laying out a plan to, quote, dash into renewable energy at lightning speed. But on the flip side, these stocks do face numerous headwinds, including policy uncertainty here in the U.S., inflationary pressures and supply chain bottlenecks. Kelly. Yeah, Pippa, what you were telling us about these tariffs the other day, that there could be 50 to I think you said 100 percent tariffs sometime over the next 12 to 18 months would seem to, you know, really be a, a, a a planning problem for anyone looking to do large-scale solar right now. And those numbers are actually 50% to 250%. Wow. So exactly, there's all this policy uncertainty here, and we are getting indication from the Biden administration. We'll hear more in, in a minute, presumably, about uh, invoking the Defense Protection Act for critical raw materials for batteries. So we do have policy agendas like that. But then on the flip side, we have the tariffs case. The Section 201 tariffs were extended back in February. So we have uncertainty there on what the longer term policy looks like. Also, the investment tax credit. These are all areas that are critical to having these projects deployed. And if you don't know the time frame, if you don't know your costs, then you're not going to attract capital. And that's been one thing that's been holding the industry back a little bit. And not to put you on the spot, Pippa, but if we're talking about more support for uh, mining key materials for battery production, other types of things. What are some stocks you think people should be watching? 
Well, we currently only have one lithium mine here in the U.S., and that is run by Albemarle. Some other companies are in development stages right now. That's a name like Lithium Americas and Piedmont Lithium. Then we also have MP Materials out in California. They mine for rare earths. And then there's another company in Michigan named Talon Metals. They're focused on nickel. So these companies do have um, you know, plans in place. But one other bottleneck is the permitting process, which is very extensive. Albemarle shares uh, still down about 3% year to date. You knew that like the back of your hand, so I'm glad I asked Pippa. Thanks very much, our Pippa Stevens. As we await to hear from President Biden on his plans for lowering energy prices, let's bring in CNBC senior White House correspondent Kayla Tausche. Brian Sullivan standing by with us as well. Kayla, anything you'd add in terms of context here for the timing of this decision, the, the broadness of it? I saw Nancy Pelosi not ruling out the idea of gasoline rebates earlier today. Yeah, I mean, everything is on the table. That has been the administration's line last week in Brussels. Uh, this was the main topic of discussion among the G7 leaders, that being the coordinated release of emergency reserves. And certainly we expect more allies to follow suit after the U.S. makes this announcement. There was a lot of coordination behind the scenes, and senior officials today made it clear that the $1 million, $1 million barrel rather per day release is simply what the U.S. is doing and that allies will be doing more on top of that. The six-month time frame, as, as Brian pointed out earlier, uh, is very uh, uh, non, not coincidental that it is going to align with the midterm elections because voters are increasingly saying that inflation and the cost of gasoline is uh, toward the top of their concerns, and that's what they want, Kelly, the president, to, to do something about. Absolutely right, Brian. We've seen inflation become kind of the number one concern here. How much can the U.S. control this? How much does it depend on events in Ukraine? I don't know how much it depends on Ukraine at all. I mean, it might be 15%, Kelly. I'm mean, just throwing that back out. Let's not forget that the price of gasoline and oil all went right, up Brian. by about 50%. Here's President we- Biden making his announcement. Let's on, American people. Today, I want to talk with you about uh, the cost here at home of Putin's decision to brutally and savagely invade a sovereign nation. The fact is, he's causing thousands of deaths and untold destruction. Working with our NATO allies and our European partners and beyond that, we, uh, we're responding. We're aiding the Ukrainian people, both economically and militarily, while leaving the most punishing economic sanctions against Russia ever used against another nation in place and increasing them. <clears throat> Thus far, these actions are crippling Russia's economy, isolating Putin from the world and helping Ukrainians fight for their country and ease their suffering. But as I've said from the start, Putin's war is imposing a cost on America and our allies and democracies around the world. Today, I want to talk about one aspect of Putin's war that affects and has real effects on American people. Putin's price hike that Americans and our allies are feeling at the pump. I know how much it hurts. As you've heard me say before, I grew up in a family like many of you where the price of a gallon of gasoline went up, it was discussion at the kitchen table. Our family budgets, your family budgets, to fill a tank, none of it should hinge on whether a dictator declares war. So today I'm laying out a two-part plan, not only to ease the pain that families are feeling right now, but to end this era of dependence and uncertainty and to lay a new foundation for true and lasting American energy independence. Parenthetically, just imagine if, in fact, Europe didn't have to count on Russian oil, if they were energy independent. 
would change the nature of so much. The problem we're facing with gas prices has two roots. First, the pandemic. When COVID struck, demand for oil plummeted, so production slowed down worldwide. It, because of the strength and the speed of our recovery, demand for oil shot back up much faster than the supply. That's why the cost of gas began to rise last year. The second route is Vladimir Putin. The start of this year, gas was about $3.30 a gallon. Today, it's about average in 4.20, 4.22. It's higher in many states. Nearly a dollar more in less than three months. And the reason for that is because of Putin's war. And now many people are no longer buying Russian oil around the world. I banned the Russian import of oil here in America. Republicans and Democrats in Congress called for it and supported it. It was the right thing to do. But I said at the time, it's going to come with a cost. As Russian oil comes off the global market, supply of oil drops and prices are rising. Now Putin's price, rake, price hike is hitting Americans at the pump, which, uh, which brings me to the first part of my plan. To immediately increase the supply of oil, our prices are rising because of Putin's action. There isn't enough supply. And the bottom line is, if we want lower gas prices, we need to have more oil supply right now. For U.S. oil companies that are recording their largest profits in years, they have a choice. One, they can put those profits to productive use by producing more oils, restarting idle wells, or producing on the sites they already are leasing. Giving the American people a break by passing some of the savings on to their customers and lowering the price at the pump. Or they can, as some of them are doing, exploit the situation, sit back, ship those profits to the investors and while American families struggle to make ends meet. Look, this is a moment of consequence and peril for the world and pain at the pump for American families. It's also a moment of patriotism. I want to acknowledge those companies that have already announced they're increasing immediate production. They're investing money to produce more oil and also clean technology we need to reduce our dependence on oil in the future. They have everything they need, nothing standing in their way. And they've indicated they will be producing an extra one million barrels of oil per day, probably starting as early as this fall. That's progress. But some companies have been pretty blunt. They don't want to increase supply because Putin's price hike means higher profits. One CEO even acknowledged that they don't care if the price of a barrel of oil goes to $200 a barrel. They're not going to step up the production. I say enough. Enough of lavishing excessive profits on investors and payouts and buybacks when the American people are watching. The world is watching. U.S. oil companies made nearly $80 billion in profit last year. And this year, those profits are expected to continue to soar. This is the time, not the time, to sit on record profits. It's time to step up for the good of your country, the good of the world, to invest in immediate production that we need to respond to Vladimir Putin, to provide some relief for your customers, not investors and executives. Look, I'm a capitalist. I have no problem with corporations turning to good profit. But companies have an obligation that goes beyond just their shareholders, to their customers, their communities, and their country. No American company should take advantage of a pandemic or of Vladimir Putin's actions to enrich themselves at the expense of American families. 
investing those profits, profits in production and innovation. That's what they should do. Invest in your customers. And it isn't just like, a, it's not the patriotic thing. It's good for your business as well. Right now, oil and gas industry is sitting on nearly 9,000 unused but approved permits for production on federal lands. Or more than a million unused acres they have a right to, to pump on. Families can't afford that companies sit on these their hands. So, to help execute this first part of my plan, I'm calling for a use-it-or-lose-it policy. Congress should make companies pay fees on wells on federal leases they haven't used in years, and acres of public land they're hoarding without production. Companies that are already producing from these wells won't be affected, but those sitting on unused leases and idle wells will either have to start producing or pay the price for their inaction. Look, the action I'm calling for will make a real difference over time. But the truth is, it takes months, not days, for companies to increase production. That's why the next part of my plan is so important. Today, I'm authorizing the release of one million barrels per day for the next six months, over 180 million barrels for the strategic, from, the, from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. This is a wartime bridge to increase oil supply until production ramps up later this year. And it is by far the largest release of our, net, of our national reserve in our history. It will provide historic amount of supply for a historic amount of time, a six-month bridge to the fall. And we'll use the revenue from selling the oil now to restock the strategic petroleum reserve when prices are lower. So we'll be ready. We'll be ready for future emergencies. Folks, I've coordinated this release with allies and partners around the world. Already, I have we have commitments from other countries to release tens of millions of additional barrels into the market. Together, our combined efforts will supply well over a million barrels a day. Nations coming together to deny Putin the ability to weaponize his energy resources against American families and families and democracies around the world. Now, for the first part of my plan, is about meeting an immediate crisis. The second part is about declaring real American energy independence in the long term, so that we never have to deal with this problem again. Ultimately, we and the whole world need to reduce our dependence on fossil fuels altogether. We need to choose long-term security over energy and climate vulnerability. We need to double down on our commitment to clean energy and tackling the climate crisis with our partners and allies around the world. And we can do that by passing my plan is literally before the Senate Right now, the United States Congress right now has been there for well over a month to speed the transition to a clean energy future that's made in America with American products and American values. We need to embrace all the tools and technologies that can help us free us from our dependence on fossil fuels, move us toward a more homegrown clean energy. Technologies made by American companies and American workers so we can bolster democratic supply, excuse me, domestic supply chains here at home and export those technologies around the world to reduce greenhouse gases. That's why today I'm issuing a directive to strengthen our clean energy economy. I'm going to use the Defense Production Act to secure American supply chains for the critical materials that go into batteries for electric vehicles and the storage of renewable energy, lithium, graphite, nickel, and so much more. 
We need to end our long-term reliance on China and other countries for inputs that will power the future. And I'll use every tool I have to make that happen. Yes, building a made in America clean energy future will help safeguard our national security. Yes, it will help us tackle climate change. Yes, it's going to help us ensure that Americans create millions of good paying jobs for generations to come. But most important, the most important thing my plan will do right away is save your family money. And here's what I mean. Under my plan, which is before the Congress now, we can take advantage of the next generation of electric vehicles that a typical driver will save about $80 a month from not having to pay gas at the pump. If your home is powered by safer, cheaper, cleaner electricity like solar or heat pumps, you can save about $500 a month on average. Don't take my word for it. The CEOs of 11 of America's largest utility companies came to see me at the White House several weeks ago. They told me if we pass my plans before the Congress now, typical families will see savings show up in their utility bills immediately. And costs will come down even more as we innovate and develop cutting-edge energy storage technologies, clean hydrogen technologies, advanced nuclear technology, carbon capture and sequestration technologies. And by the way, this week's the benefit I included in the bipartisan infrastructure law to help families weatherize their homes are being delivered. My administration is making $3.2 billion available from this legislation to provide up to $6,500 direct payment for working-class families to be able to weatherize their homes, to save them money, to keep them warm in the winter and cool in the summer. It's a direct grant. This program has been around for a while, and in the past, it's delivered to families, average families, another $327 in savings when they weatherize. But now we have the ability to reach 10 times as many families because of the legislation that we already passed in the, in, in the legislation. In addition to that, we're also setting new standards to boost fuel economies for new vehicles sold in America. Within five years, we're going to travel 10 miles more on every single gallon we have because the average fuel economy of 49 miles of the gallon is going to be required. That means hundreds of dollars in savings for families at the pump. We're also setting similar standards for appliances, from your air conditioner to your microwave, your refrigerator, washers, dryers. It's just one of 100 actions we're taking to save the average family $100 per year in utility bills. Look, the bottom line is this. Between wrapping up, ramping up production in the short term and driving down demand in the long term, we can free ourselves from our dependence on imported oil from across the world. Look, I know gas prices are painful. I get it. My plan's going to help ease that pain today and safeguard again against tomorrow. I'm open to ideas to strengthen the plan, but I'll not be put off and put it on hold. It's time to deliver true long-term energy independence in America once and for all. And I'm going to continue to use every tool at my disposal to protect you from Putin's price hike. It's not time for politics. America's, Americans can't afford that right now. So let's meet this moment together. Remember, we're the only nation that has turned every crisis we ever faced into an opportunity. We have a crisis, the price at the pump. So let's show some true strength in this nation, show our unity, our resolve, our innovative spirit in America, and come out of this long term much better off. If we stand up to the bullies of the world, the autocrats and dictators, we stand up for those who are 
are who are ready to unite, unite with us, United States of America. So may God bless you and may God protect our troops. Thank you. Mr. President, how badly is Vladimir Putin being misinformed by his advisors? That's an open question. Uh, there's a lot of speculation. Uh, but uh, he seems to be, I'm not saying this with a certainty, he seems to be self-isolating. And there's some indication that he has um, fired or put under house arrest some of his advisors. Um, but I, I don't want to put too much stock in that at this time because we don't have that much hard evidence. Mr. President, Mr. President, Mr. President how much in monetary terms do you estimate today's announcement will reduce gas prices, and when can Americans expect to see these changes? That's a really important question, and there's no firm answer to it. But prices already came down when it was announced ahead of time that Biden was going and there's going to be a slight delay because if you go out there and you're a gas station and you purchased X amount of gas at a certain price, you're not going to lower the price of the pump until you're able to get back what you invested. And that I'm talking matter of, I think, you know, days and weeks. But it's hard to tell. And the other thing is exact, but it will come down. And it could come down fairly significantly. It could come down the better part of, you know, anything from 10 cents to... 35 cents a gallon. It's unknown at this point. I'm also waiting to see whether or not our allies exactly how many how many barrels they release from their supplies now. My guess is it could be as high somewhere between 30 million to 50 million barrels. And the higher the number, the more likely the prices to come down. Thank you all very much. I appreciate it. Thank you. All righty, that was uh, President Biden announcing the single largest release of oil reserves from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve in America's history, putting a million additional barrels on the market per day to help cut gasoline prices. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.